According to Islamic tradition, uh, there are two angels that always remain on your shoulders. And one of them has the name of Rakib, and the other one has the name of Atid. And, but in Islamic tradition, they don't whisper in your ear to do good or to do bad. Instead, according to Islamic tradition, they're taking notes. They're writing down one of them, the one on your right shoulder, writes down all the good things that you do. And the one on the left shoulder writes down all the bad things that you do. And then, according to Islamic tradition, on the Day of Judgment, each of these angels uh, confronts you with a record of all of your good and your bad, and then they tell on you to, to God, to Allah, they would say. And uh, they would give all this information to God, and God would decide on the Day of Judgment whether you deserve mercy or whether you deserved judgment. And now, all of that's wrong. I mean, it's just wrong. It's, it's conjecture from people that believe in a false religion. Uh, but one of the biggest differences between the Christian faith and the Islamic faith is how a person goes to paradise or to heaven. According to Islamic tradition, and according to Islam, God, on that day of judgment, will show mercy to believers as he wishes. But Islam does not answer this question. It does not answer on what basis does God show mercy to some. God simply, according to Islam, shows mercy to some, perhaps on a whim. And doesn't show mercy to others. Again, on the basis of how he feels that day. You see, Muslims have no assurance of their salvation. They can't really know whether they're saved or whether they're headed toward hell until they find out on the day of judgment. And on that day, it's too late to do anything about it. Muslims have no idea. They have no assurance. You ask a Muslim, hey, how are your sins paid for? And they will likely say something to this effect. They may not, may not say it exactly like this, but they'll just say, well, God just overlooks me if he shows mercy to me. He just forgets that I did them. But if you press a Muslim and you, and you bring them to this conclusion that if God were to do that, he would be unjust. Can you, can, can you imagine committing a crime here on earth? Harming somebody, raping somebody, murdering somebody, doing some terrible thing to somebody. And then you go before the judge and the judge says, you know what, don't worry about it. That's not justice. That's not justice at all. And if God did that, if there was no penalty for sin for some, but there was a penalty for sin for others, that's not justice at all. God would not be just. God would not be God. Because God by His very nature has to be just. God by His very nature has to be holy. And so there's no basis in the Islamic faith for why some should go to paradise, why some should go to heaven. But as Christians, we know that there's a basis for God showing mercy to some. The basis is this, 
that God loved us so much that He became one of us. He became flesh in Christ. And Christ, Jesus Christ, died on a cross. And when Jesus died on that cross, that paid the penalty for everything bad that I've done, for everything bad that I've said, for everything bad that I've thought, and you as well. That is the basis for the forgiveness that we can receive. And we receive the forgiveness of God simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not very difficult to get around, get your head around this concept. That we receive God's mercy on that basis. So Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He rose from the grave to grant us eternal life. There is a difference when it comes to the day of judgment between Islam and Christianity. Now, my sermon is not about Islam today. But I want you to know that that idea of two angels on your shoulders taking notes, going to tell on you someday, well, that's, that's just not true. In fact, the more popular notion in our culture of two angels sitting on your shoulders whispering good and bad things in your ear, uh, well, that's, that's not true either. There is a reason that you struggle with sin. There is this struggle between deciding to do the right thing and the wrong thing, but it has nothing to do with two angels on your shoulders. The reason that we struggle with sin is because we have within us two parts of us, if you will, that are in conflict with one another. You see, it has nothing to do with angels on your shoulders. It has everything to do with you. Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 7 verses 13 through the first part of verse 25. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. We're in the series, Romans, Mercy to All. And fortunately, we've come to a very confusing passage today. And we're going to see if we can make sense of it. So this message might be a little bit uh, different than uh, a lot of times when I preach, because I do want you to understand. If we don't understand, then... We're going to walk away with a lot of different ideas, a lot of them wrong, and I want you to understand. And so, when you found Romans chapter 7, verse 13, would you stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word? And I'll be reading out loud from the New American Standard Bible, and you follow along in your scriptures, or you can follow along with the words on the screen. Scripture says in Romans chapter 7, verse 13, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin, by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. 
For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we study this passage, that you'd allow me to teach it well and that you'd allow us each to understand it properly so that our lives might be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now this passage confuses a lot of people, um, and, and it doesn't help that there's been so many different interpretations of this passage throughout Christian history. For example, some people say that, well, what Paul's doing here in Romans, he's differentiating his life uh, from before he was saved and then after he got saved. And so the interpretation in this idea is simply that, that in Romans 7, Paul is talking about his human experience before he met Christ, and then in Romans 8, it was after he met Christ. And so the same experience that would be the same experience, essentially, that you and I would have. So that's one interpretation. And, and so people might say, well, you know, before I got saved, I might conclude this way, before I got saved, I had this struggle in my life between right and wrong, but now that I'm saved, I live by the Spirit of God, and I don't struggle with sin anymore. Well, that sounds good. I wish it were true. But it's not. That's not what Paul says, and it's not what Paul meant. And that kind of interpretation uh, has led some preachers and teachers to this conclusion. If you struggle with sin, that means you're not saved. And that kind of teaching simply is not true. Some people, a different interpretation, some people say that Paul is describing Israel apart from Christ, and he sort of personalizes it with his own experience as a Jew uh, before he came to faith in Christ. And, uh, and I don't think that interpretation works very well either. Some, another interpretation, some people say that Paul is describing Adam. Adam is the fleshly man, and Christ is the other man, the one that wants to do good. And, and, uh, and then other people say, well, what Paul is actually doing, he's talking about his own life right now after being saved, his own personal struggles right now after being saved. And you can see if you start to study this passage and you start to read all these commentaries that depending on which commentary you read, you're going to go in vastly different directions. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to make sense of this passage. And I'm going to, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to summarize Paul's framework and his thinking so we can all be on the same page we can all see where he's coming from. And, and if we can do that, then this passage becomes a lot easier to understand. But, uh, but in order for us to really step into Paul's shoes 
and to start thinking in, in the terminology and the framework of Paul, I need you to do something first. I need you to set aside, at least for this one sermon, for the next 25 minutes, next, not even that long, for this one sermon, I need you to set aside your preconceived ideas. And the reason this is important is because if you bring a lot of your own ideas into the study of the text, then I'm afraid that you'll only end up hearing what you want to hear and seeing what you want to see. And you'll actually be doing this. You'll actually be reading into Scripture, perhaps, something that is not there. And if that's, if that's what you're in the practice of doing, then why study Scripture at all? I mean, if, if you're going, if you claim to be reading God's Word, and really you're only reading the things that you want to read into God's Word, and you then claim it to be God's Word, then you essentially have shut God out. Okay? And so with that in mind, here are some, pro some common preconceived ideas that I'm asking you to set aside as we study this passage in Romans 7. The first is something that I've already touched on, and it's this. Set aside this idea that if, if, if I'm really a Christian, then I won't struggle with sin. You need to set that aside. Okay, I've already touched on that. But you need to set that aside. 1 John 1.9 makes it clear that Christians sin because it tells us what to do when we sin. If when we do sin, what does 1 John 1, 9 say to do? Confess it to God. And if you're sitting here today and you think, well, no, I'm a Christian. I don't sin anymore. Uh, I'll, I'll look you in the face and I'll tell you to your face that, no, you do sin and you'll probably get real mad at me and that'll be the same. But, so anyway, um, in 1 John 1, 9, God would not have told us what to do when we sin if we don't continue sometimes, on occasion, to mess up. And so when you hear someone tell you that, hey, you're not saved if you struggle with sin, they're wrong. Just let them know that they're wrong. Also, a second thing to set aside, any kind of preconceived notion of what constitutes a human. What I mean by that is this. Some people have studied Scripture a lot and they've come to the idea that we are, in our essence, in our constitution, as a human, we are a dichotomy. We are body and soul. Others study the same scriptures, and they come to the conclusion that we are a trichotomy. We are a body, a soul, and a spirit. And sometimes it's fun to get these two people arguing with each other. Because the one that says we're a dichotomy, they say, no, soul and spirit mean the same thing. And the one that says trichotomy, no, soul and spirit don't mean the same thing. And they get them arguing with each other. And I need you to, at least for this sermon, set aside any preconceived ideas that you might have in that regard. And it's really for two reasons. Number one, if it really mattered, whether we were dichotomous or trichotomous, um, God would have made it clear in his word and there would be no doubt about it. There would be no arguments about it. And secondly, most importantly, if we overemphasize what God does not emphasize, it's going to lead us to a lot of unbiblical conclusions. For example, a lot of people who study that in, in detail, that a lot of times I've seen them come to the conclusion that, okay, well, your spirit, that's really your emotions. Well, that's just conjecture. In fact, it's not right. According to God's word, if you study the word pneuma, word spirit as it relates to humans, 
you find out that your spirit is the true inner self within. Here's another misconception. A lot of us have come to this uh, idea that, okay, well, the soul is the immaterial part of the body, or the immaterial part of the human, and the body is the material. So we have the immaterial and the material. Well, here's the problem with that. That's an ancient Greek idea. And it's not biblical. The ancient Greeks said that humans are made of two parts, body and soul. But the biblical understanding of the word soul, the Greek word psyche, is that it designates your vitality of life. The Hebrew word for soul is nephesh. The biblical understanding means it is your life, the fact that you are alive. You are a thinking, you are a working, you are a feeling person. And so in Genesis chapter 2, when God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, he became a living soul. Genesis 2 verse 7. That means that Adam became an alive creature. Here's something you might not know. In Genesis 1, the same word, soul, is used four different times. It's used of land creatures. It's used of sea creatures. And it's used of creatures of the air. The same word, soul. The idea of a soul in Hebrew thought and in biblical New Testament thought is that to be a soul means that you are an alive creature. The word soul is never used of plants, but it's used of animals, and it's used of us as humans, too. So if you've come to this idea that in your mind that, okay, I'm a body, and I'm a soul, and these two parts are put together, the soul is the immaterial part of you, at the very least, it's a misuse of the New Testament word that we translate soul. So when a person dies... And someone says, well, the body goes into the ground and the soul goes to be with the Lord in heaven. Well, they're close to being right. The, that believer who dies, he is with the Lord in heaven. Make no mistake about it. Scripture is very clear. He's with the Lord in heaven. But they're using the word soul in a way that the Bible simply doesn't use it. And, and if we're not careful in our use of biblical words, we can actually come to an unbiblical conclusion about and, and misemphasize what Scripture emphasizes. You know, in fact, when we say, we say when someone dies, well, they're with the Lord in heaven. And that's absolutely true. Scripture teaches that. But you know, the apostles of the first century and the Christians of the first century, that wouldn't be the first thing out of their mouth. When someone died, they would say this, you know, someday that person will be resurrected with a brand new glorified body because that will be the eternal state of that person. Us being with the Lord in heaven when we die, as incredible as that is, that's temporary. Because there's coming a day 
when we'll get a brand new body. And that will be forever and ever. So do yourself a favor. For this message, set aside your preconceived ideas about soul and spirit. And now, to help you understand what Paul is talking about in Romans 7, I want to show you where he's coming from. And when you understand this, I think this passage will make sense. It might even help you understand why you struggle with sin. Why you struggle with sin and how God can help you. Paul distinguishes in his theology, Paul distinguishes between two parts of humanity. There is, and I'm going to use these terms so that there's no confusion. There is the outer flesh of your mortal body, and there is the inner person inside that resides within. Your outer flesh and your inner person. These two things are not physically distinct from each other. You can't find a surgeon who will cut you open and say, oh, there's the inner self right there. No. There's a spiritual part of you that uh, cannot be seen by a surgeon or anything else. They're, They're not physically distinct. They're not separable from each other. But they are, and this is the important part, these two, the outer flesh of your mortal body and your inner self are locked in a spiritual battle that will last throughout your entire life. Now let's, let me just summarize the outer flesh of your mortal body, what Paul believes about this. Number one, the outer flesh of your mortal body has no goodness dwelling within it. There's no goodness in the outer flesh of your mortal body. None. You might not want to believe that, but that's what Scripture says. It says that here in this, these verses that we just read. Secondly, the outer flesh of your mortal body, has that is where sin lives. It is the host. Your body is the host. The outer flesh of your mortal body is the host for the sin that will eventually kill your body. You know it and I know it. We already have a death sentence. Thank you, Adam. Right? That sin dwells in the mortal flesh in the outer flesh of your mortal body. Third, the outer flesh of your mortal body will die. It will die. When your mortal body dies, it will take sin with it. Now, this dynamic is very much like having a terminal disease. Your body is the host of a terminal disease keeping that disease alive. But eventually, if left unchecked, a terminal disease will kill its own host, the body. And when the host, the body, dies, the terminal disease within it also dies. It kills its own host. That's what sin is. Sin resides in the the outer flesh of your mortal body. The outer flesh of your mortal body is beyond saving. It is beyond saving. It cannot be saved. It must die. However, it can be replaced. And it will be. The outer flesh of your mortal body will be replaced with a new, redeemed 
resurrected body. And that is awesome news. That's the outer flesh. Now, what does Paul say about the inner person? The inner person, here's what Paul says. The inner person is dead spiritually because of sin. Without Christ, he's, it is dead spiritually. The inner person may become reborn. And it is reborn through faith in Jesus Christ. The inner person also is the potential residence of the Holy Spirit. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you. And, it, and He dwells in the inner spirit. And the inner spirit, the inner person, is where goodness dwells. That goodness comes through the Holy Spirit. These two columns that you see on the wall behind me, this is a summary of what Paul teaches about these two parts of you, Christian. Outer flesh and inner person. Now, this might be new to some of you, but that is what this passage and others teach. And now with this in mind, and with this, this slide is going to remain on the screen, I'm going to read this passage again with just a few clarifying injections and a minimum of comments. Verse 13 says, Therefore, did that which is good, Paul's talking about God's law, the Ten Commandments. Did that which is good, did God's law become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. Sin killed me. Not, not God's law. Sin killed me. My sin killed me. Adam's sin killed him, but it wasn't God's law. It, rather, it was sin in order that it might be, might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. That's God's law. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. We've talked about how God's law causes us to realize, wake up, to open up and figure out, hey, these things that I'm doing, it leads to death, and God says not to do them, but I keep on doing them. It's the power of sin in our lives. And so God's law is good. God's law did not cause your body to become mortal and eventually die. It's your own disobedience and your own sin that does that. But that, you know what? That doesn't stop a lot of people from blaming God. God is so strict, they say. God is too harsh. God is too mean, people say. It's impossible to please God. You know, in our propensity to make excuses, it's like a convicted felon if he was to be interviewed from prison. Let's, let's say this felon murdered somebody, and it's clear. There's no doubt about it. He murdered someone. It's cut and dry. He did it. But in the interview, if someone asked him, what do you think about the law against murder? And he replies, you know, man, that law against murder, that's just too strict. That law needs to be changed. That law has me locked up in here. For the rest of my life. I mean, I get it. There needs to be a law. But man, to punish someone for the rest of his life just because he did one thing wrong? There's something wrong with that. Something's wrong with that law, he says. Any prisoner who responds that way, he just doesn't get it, does he? They don't understand. 
The problem is not with the law against murder. The problem is the murder. The problem is the bad behavior that caused the murder. The law is good and holy. The person is bad. Verse 14. Paul writes, For we know that the law, God's law, is spiritual, but I am of flesh. That's my outer flesh. I'm sold into bondage to sin. For what I, he means my outer flesh, for what my outer flesh is doing, my inner person does not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. What Paul's saying is that when my outer flesh conflicts with my inner person and I commit a sin, which my inner person does not want to do, I end up in the end proving God's law to be right. I proved the Ten Commandments to be right. I proved that it is wrong to covet. It is wrong to lie. It is wrong to steal. It is wrong to hate. I proved, through my disobedience, I proved God's law to be right. God's law says it, and now my inner person confirms it. Verse 17. Paul says, so now, no longer am I, my inner person, the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, my outer flesh. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my outer flesh. For the willing is present in me, my inner person, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I, my inner person, want, I do not do, but I, my outer flesh, practice the very evil that I, my inner person, do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing that I, my inner person, do not want, I am no longer doing, no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, my outer flesh. Verse 21. Paul says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, in the outer flesh. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? You know, as Christians, we struggle every day against sin. Every hour of every day. And if you take your faith seriously at all, like me, you grow tired of this struggle against sin. You simply want to do what God wants you to do. And yet, there's temptation here, and there's temptation there. And there's a struggle here, and you lose your temper there. And this happens, and that happens, and all around you, there's temptation to fall. Temptation. It's constant. A constant enemy. And it's not from the outside. But it's from within the members of our body. In fact, if we were to be completely removed from every other person and every outside influence, we would still struggle with sin. If we were placed into a perfect kingdom with a perfect king, we would still, still struggle against sin. 
And maybe that's part of the reason for the millennial reign of Christ someday. Because if you understand that correctly, Jesus Christ will reign in perfect holiness from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And yet at the end of the thousand years, fallen humanity will rebel against him. They have a perfect environment. They have a perfect king. And yet there's still sin within the unbelievers of that age that caused them to rebel. This sin within us, it is an ever-present reality. And there is only one thing that will eliminate the presence of sin from us. And it is the death of this body. That's it. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? From the body of this death. Verse 25. He answers the question. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see according to Paul. According to scripture. This body. Must. Die. But Jesus. Because he was resurrected from the grave. He will give me. A brand new body. A glorified body. A resurrected body at the day of our resurrection. That body will not be mortal. That body will not have sin. That body will not have sickness. That body will not be cast into the lake of fire forever. But that body will live forever with God. That body will eat from the tree of life. That body will walk into the new Jerusalem someday. That body will walk the streets of gold. That body will reign with Christ. That body will be with God. That body will have the incredible experience of God Himself Wiping every tear from my eye. I'm sick of this body of sin. I want that body. That body is waiting for me. But I've got to wait my turn. It's coming someday. God has promised it. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ. Our Lord. If today. You're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has made promises to you. That if you'll receive him. Through faith. All of these things that I've mentioned will be yours. And you will have forgiveness of sin. You'll have eternal life. All you have to do is say yes to Jesus and follow him.